0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How's it going, CC? All right, I feel like you're ready. Um, Maybe it's excited to end the series, I don't know. So speaking of that, if you are, you're like, when's this going to be over? It's over today. And then next week, Vision 2022, uh, for the next two weeks that I'll be preaching, I love it. Uh, these messages, and this may not seem like a great time to invite somebody. It's actually the best time to invite somebody next week because, really, what I'm talking about is uh, our vision for the local church, which, really, I believe, you know, we're gonna do it imperfectly, but God's dream and vision for the local church. And it's such a great time to invite because you know people, one or probably a thousand they've had a bad experience with the church, they maybe walked away from Jesus, and it really didn't have anything to do with Jesus, it had a bunch to do with religious people in the church. And so this is such a great time to go, this is what we believe God's called us to as a church, and specifically Centerpoint, and where we're going for the future. My wife's going to help me out for a little part of the message, and I cannot wait. So next week, that starts, and um, you need to bring somebody to be here. So speaking of my wife, one of the things that, and this may be too big a stretch, but it annoys her. It does annoy her. Um, Is I want to know the answer to the question, why about everything? And so, Um, I am constantly reading weird stuff and asking questions and investigating things. It's just part of how I'm wired, which can be annoying sometimes. I know that about myself. But I just always want to know why behind something. I always want to know somebody else's argument and and hopefully be able to articulate it clearly, um, you know, on their behalf, even if I don't believe it. And so there's times where my wife is like, could you just stop? Could you stop asking questions? Um, Could you just stop bothering me with this? You know, that type of thing. But it's just in me. And here's how I think it relates to God for me and then also for a lot of you, whether you're watching online or shout at unfiltered radio on FM AM now and maybe you're podcasting or you're physically in the house. Here's something that a lot of us do, and that is we think in terms of God that if God would just perform some kind of massive miraculous sign, our faith would be so much bigger. Like, God, if you would just do something big, I swear it would grow my faith. And then for some of us, we'd be like, I I would be all in. And sometimes I just think God, because I I like to think he's sarcastic. And I think you see this in the gospels. God would just show up to go, well, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could create a, a large, massive floating rock that would be big enough for all of life, and then it would be perfectly positioned just right to actually sustain life, and it would be in stark contrast to every other floating rock in the universe. And then he's like, well, I, actually, I did that. And then, Or then maybe he'd be like, okay, so what, what if I did this? Because we're, we're still like, no, no, but I'm talking about something miraculous. God, do something amazing, and if you did it, I'd be all in. And so he's like, okay, well, what if I what if I just mounted, like, two 576 megapixel, um, you know, cameras to your face that you would actually see out of, and then I connected them to a 3,000 gigahertz computer with more memory than you're ever going to be able to access or use in a lifetime? Like, what if I did, and he's like, oh, I already did that, actually. And you know, but I mean something, like, amazing. Or, this is crazy to me, because I, I think about this weird stuff, like, Right now, 50,000 of your cells are dying and then being replaced with new ones in the time that it's spent to, for me to tell you that. And no conscious effort on your part. Like, you didn't think about, like, I'm going to need to make sure that I make this happen. It just happens. Your body just does it. And again, we're like, but no, no, God, I mean, do something really crazy, like really miraculous. Like, if you would do some kind of miraculous healing, all in, all in for you. And and then I I would imagine God's like, okay, well, remember that 3,000 gigahertz computer that I gave you that's connected to more memory than you're ever going to be able to access in your lifetime? I've actually given you the ability to heal most things yourself. God's like, this is crazy. I actually created a species of healers. And if 2,000 years ago, when, when these guys were writing the scriptures, if they were able to show up in modern hospitals today and visit doctors, they would call those doctors gods. In light of what they'd experienced. Now, they're not, as I tell my brother-in-law all the time, because the radiology, are not God. But it's pretty cool what you're able to do and what we're able to do. But again, we're like, but, but God, no, that's cool. But do something really crazy, really miraculous. And I think God sometimes like, are you serious? So we'll come back to that in a second. We're in part four of this series, You're Not Far. And we're tracking with John, who was really close to Jesus. And he wrote a gospel called the Gospel of John creatively titled, but he didn't know it was going to be the gospel of John. He just sat down to go, I've got to document what I've seen and what I've heard. And I think somebody probably convinced John toward the end of his life, he was maybe the last surviving apostle. He had seen so much from Jesus. And we've said throughout the series, this is really important, he didn't believe because of faith, that's unintellectual, he believed because of what he saw and heard. And ultimately, ultimately, it led him to follow Jesus. And then he sat down to say, I need to document this for future generations, But what John documented was not just what happened, but why it happened. Not just what Jesus did, but who Jesus is. Because here's what John understood, because this is how it happened for him. If you ever get connected to who Jesus is, it has the ability to transform everything for you. And then John sits down and he writes this, because he's like, I have an agenda, I'll just be straight up with you, and this is where I'm hoping you get, because this is ultimately where I got. And that is that you would... See and read the things that have been written and that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the result is that by believing or trusting in, you would have life in Jesus' name. And John, all throughout this gospel, basically organizes it around miracles. We call them miracles. John actually called them signs because he recognized it wasn't just about a miracle. Jesus wasn't just about providing health care and, you know, clothes to those who didn't have clothes and food to the hungry. It was all about something bigger. And the bigger was Jesus' identity. And so he would document these signs Jesus performed that said something about Jesus' identity that ultimately led to evidence so that they could believe, and then they didn't believe, and then they believed again, and didn't believe, and then they believed again. And then after Easter weekend, they finally placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And so John says, it was good enough for me. I think it'll be good enough for you, but you just need to know God is not inviting you into some relationship where you believe or trust in something and hope it works out. That's naive. That's maybe what you were taught in Sunday school. That's not the biblical faith that Jesus actually talks about. It's based on evidence. God's done something in history through Jesus so that ultimately you would believe and maybe trust in, and in the case of John, he gave up his life for it. And so we've been tracking through these signs that ultimately lead to evidence, and we're on the fifth one today, and I know that most of you don't have an old school Bible like I do. There's, there's just a lot that's old school about me, so I like this, um, but your grandparent probably had a Bible, um, I'm not going to ask if anybody has an actual Bible in the house right now. Um, but if you, uh, okay, you're pointing to your your grandparent um, who's here. So that that proves my point. So um, so you remember these, um, or you have a dusty one somewhere, and in the heading a lot of times it'll have these titles. So the title of this would be Healing of a Blind Man, which is like the fifth sign in John's Gospel, and he's like, I was there, I was tracking with Jesus. It was another amazing event, but what so many times is lost is what Jesus was pointing to through this event, the sign that he was pointing to, because as we've said, it was never about the miracle. It was never about the moment. Jesus was always pointing to something bigger. Jesus was always foreshadowing something. So throughout his gospel, he had been between Judea and Galilee, and he finally ends up back in the vicinity of Jerusalem when this event or this sign or miracle took place. And John wrote down in John chapter 9 that he went along and saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, and they, they just don't even think that there's another question to be asked. They're just, Rabbi, who sinned? This guy or his parents that he was born blind? Like no nuance, there's no other you know questions to be asked here, it's just cut and dry. This guy's blind, He suffered all his life, what did he do? Or what his parents do? Maybe his parents are involved in this. Because they assumed, and some of you maybe assume this as well, that there is, there is a, a connection every single time between sin and suffering, and that... It's a cause and effect relationship. And so if you're suffering or you're walking through something, then obviously God is angry at something. Obviously God is getting back. Obviously you're getting paid back. Now here's a quick side note. Sometimes suffering is the result of sin, but it's almost always clearly connected. And you know that, right? Like there are certain behaviors that have outcomes that are not going to bode well for you or other people make decisions that cause you to suffer. And it's not because of God's like punishment or God's wrath that was actually taken care of when Jesus went to the cross. but there is just cause and effect relationship in the world like you make certain decisions, other people make certain decisions, and they're suffering as a result, right? But the connection is always or generally is always really, really clear. Jesus is about to make the point and this is really, really important that when the connection is not clear, it's not sin that that you just live in a sin-infested world where sometimes stuff just hits the fan and stuff just happens. And so Jesus turns to these guys asking the question. He says, neither. And by the way, you're about to find out you're completely wrong about God. And all of your assumptions are misguided. This guy nor his parents sin, there is no direct cause and effect relationship here. And so Jesus said, this happened. And this this is a little bothersome from Jesus. It's not emotionally satisfying, meaning you don't hear this and go, okay, well, that makes me feel better about what I'm walking through, but it's just true. And Jesus says, this has happened so that, and Jesus taught over and over again that pain, as much as we would never choose it, has a purpose. And maybe it's possible, perhaps it's possible that all pain has a purpose. And it certainly did, you can't argue this, it did for Jesus we're about to find out that it did for this blind man, and perhaps it does for you. One, one of the really interesting things to consider if you've walked away from faith because of needless pain and suffering, which I totally get, and that's a really good argument. The things that, thing that you just have to consider, though, is this. That is a ton of blind faith in your own cognitive reasoning. Because you can actually look back, and I don't even know many of you that are listening or watching, but you can look back on your own life maybe a decade ago or five years ago, and you walked through something that was horrific. You suffered in a deep way, and you walked through that thinking there is no way that anything good could ever come from this. And now five years later, a decade later, you can actually look back on that same experience and recognize that it was something that was used, whether there's a God or not, to produce incredible good in your life. Whether it was a relationship that broke up or a job that f- failed or a career that dead ended or some other thing that you didn't think you could get past. And there was no purpose in the moment. And now looking back, you can see purpose in that. And so I would just encourage you to think about this thing. If you are able to, as a finite human being, like you binge Netflix and eat Cheetos and whatever, like I don't know what your GPA was, but you're just a human being. All of us are. If you can look back on things of your life and see purpose in those specific events, is it possible that that an infinite God can see all suffering and find purpose in that? Like, is it possible? And I don't know, but that's the question that you should ask. And so Jesus over and over again teaches that God can work purpose out of suffering. And so he says, this happened actually to this guy, so that purpose, statement, result, the works of God might be displayed in him. This had nothing to do with sin. This has nothing to do with his baggage. This has nothing to do with his parents. This has everything to do with God doing something in his life so that 2,000 years ago, I bet there's going to be people talking about him, that sometimes God chooses to display his power on the stage of our suffering. And we would never choose that, but God's just decided that he's going to use that. And isn't this true? This is just true for my life. I've never been enamored or inspired or moved by somebody's wrinkle-free life. Like amazing, your kids got in, got accepted. That's awesome for you. And I maybe even love your kid, but that's great. And then I'm gonna move on with my life. Or that's amazing that you're 401k, fatter than I can even imagine. That's amazing you just got that thing or it worked out for them and your relationship is so awesome. Like generally we are not inspired and moved by those people like, ah, that is just so amazing. In fact, you probably unfollow them on Instagram. Like that's what you do with them. Like it doesn't produce this huge thing, but you watch the people who walk through incredible suffering and pain and they're not naive or detached from reality, but they walk through and somehow they're able, able to maintain confidence in God and peace and even joy in the midst of circumstances. We're like, how in the world do you do that? And I'm telling you, that's the thing that grabs your attention. That's the thing that moves you. I have a friend of mine that in February was feeling really crazy things. He's in his uh, mid-30s now. And after several weeks of tests, fi- finds out he's got cancer that they can't really do anything with, inoperable operable cancer. And then he goes and they try every kind of treatment imaginable and we're however many months into this. And then they find out he's in the 1% to where basically nothing will work for him. So not only does he have this, but he's in this weird spot where just the things that even normally work to slow it down, none of it works. And I'm telling you, I was just texting him this weekend and we've talked multiple times and he, he is well aware of the prognosis and, and all of that. And I've watched that guy walk through this with joy that's unimaginable. Like I, I text him or call him to encourage him and I'm like, I, and I just feel stupid. And the confidence that he has that somehow God is working in this and that he will be okay and that he's been able to find peace and joy in the midst of suffering that is so, for some of us, unimaginable. And I'm telling you, I don't overstate that. It is staggering. And there's something about it, like I already believe, but I watch how he's handling this and I think, if I didn't believe, I would want this to be true. And the other thing is, I don't know how you make this up. And maybe like, you can muster up something that, to just, I need something to hang on to that's going to give me hope, but I, it is so real. His confidence is so real. His peace is so real. I don't know how you could make that up and just believe it. It is the realest thing in the world that I've ever encountered. And all throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus elevating this again and again, that sometimes, even though we wouldn't choose it, God will display his glory and his power on the stage of our suffering and even our dysfunction. And so Jesus turns to them with their kind of wrong implication of who sinned and says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. They're like, Jesus, did you just change the subject? Because this does not seem like what we were just talking about. And then Jesus says, verse five, while I'm in the world, I love this, I'm the light of the world, meaning, guys, my identity will never be more obvious than it is in this moment. The light of the world will never shine brighter than it does in this moment, And I'm about to peace out and I'm gonna give you the spirit of God. But when I leave, you just need to know it's gonna get darker than ever. And that's why I want you to follow me in this moment and listen to me in this moment. And I want you to to watch what I do in this moment because you will never have more clarity than you do right now with the light of the world standing right in front of you. And then after saying this, (laughs) he spit on the ground. Made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Hey, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> and here's where I wish we had a ton more information about what actually happened in this moment. Like, you can't just say that and then move on. But John does. Like, John, give me more. Like, did Jesus ask permission? Hey, just so you know, you can't see me right now. You don't really know who I am. Um, we're just being introduced. I'm gonna I'm gonna spit all over some mud and I'm gonna jam it in your eyes. Is that cool? Like you just wonder, did Jesus ask him? So, anyway, Jesus is there, mud on the guy's hands. There's probably saliva running down his face. That's too much information. And Jesus, verse seven, says what he's been saying to every generation and what he says to us Go, go, and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, real quick, this this is the parts we miss. This is so important. It's never about the moment. It's never about the miracle. It's never about the outcome. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always pointing to something bigger and always foreshadowing something. And right now is a foreshadowing of what he is going to invite every single individual, specifically Jesus follower, to do for the rest of time until Jesus comes back. Because in this moment, he's foreshadowing this dynamic of asking this man to walk by faith rather than his sight. And in the moment, it's a physical declaration. Soon it will be a spiritual invitation of this is what I want and what I invite every single Jesus follower to do. And so he says to this guy, you can't see, but I want you to trust me. I want you to walk by faith in who you think I am, even though maybe you're only putting 60% of it together. And I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. And this guy, this blind man, who'd been blind his whole life, chose to trust someone he could not see based on rumors based on what he had heard about Jesus, based on all of the evidence that there was to this point to go, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And I'm going to literally, physically walk by faith. And so the man went, washed, came home seeing his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Like, we're pretty sure he is, but you don't just one day go out of the house and not seeing or somebody leads him there and everybody knows he's been there for decades and then the next day he's like walking around and he can see, so this is odd. Then some claim that he was, others said, nah, he looks a lot like that guy. He, there's a huge resemblance. There's no way he's that guy. And then the, the blind man finally spoke up who now could see and says, no, no, I am the man. How then, they said, were your eyes opened? And he replied, the man they called Jesus Made some mud. I don't really know how he made it, but he made some mud, put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went. I obeyed him. I did it even though none of it made sense. And I washed. And then it says that after he did this verse, uh, end of verse 11, so I went and washed, and then I could see, and then Verse 12, this is the dumbest question in the history of the world, all of the scriptures right here. This is where the Pharisees just at no level are they tracking with reality or like clued in at all. So verse 4, dumbest question in the world. Where is this man, they asked him. And the blind man is like, I, I don't know because I didn't see where he went. Why are you asking me this stupid question? And it's not in there, but John leaves it out. And then verse 13, they brought the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. And verse 14, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud, this is where the story turns, the music changes, and opened the man's eyes, dun, 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 was Sabbath. And at this point, if you're here week two, this is a constant running problem with Jesus. So all the religious leaders are looking at Jesus going, when is this guy gonna learn? Like we already called him out on this once, Where he was healing a guy on the Sabbath. Now he comes back again and he's just completely disregarding our law, healing another guy. So here's the problem. You couldn't need, this is so ridiculous, you couldn't need on the Sabbath, like K-N-E-A-D. Couldn't need, couldn't mix anything. It was a form of work. So the fact that this guy spit in the mud and needed something to put on the eyes, that was a violation. So all of the mall cops with their little things like for the a Sabbath violation were all there ready to pounce on Jesus. Like, I, our, Jesus, you've, you've got to knock it off. Now, again, week two, you can go back and listen to that if you haven't. It wasn't a violation. It was a violation of their oral tradition that they made up. It wasn't a part of the commandments. It was never the intent of the law. And the religious system was never to, to move to this place where the law would have precedent over loving and extending grace to people, which is what they had made the law into. And so there he is, and they think that Jesus has violated their Sabbath by healing and doing something that wasn't prohibited or was prohibited. In verse 15, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, talking to the blind man. Uh, he's like, he put mud on my eyes. Uh, again, I'm not sure I made it. Uh, the man replied, and I washed, and now I can see. And then verse 16, this is so interesting. Some of the Pharisees said, "This man is not from God. You just need to know this. How do you know? Like I know you may not be enamored, but I, I haven't been able to see for a while, and now all of a sudden I can see, and without any more evidence or information, you're willing to just declare that this is not God, and then they give their reasoning, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Which meant he didn't keep their version of the Sabbath. He didn't, this is so important because all of us can be guilty. Jesus didn't fit into their God box. This is not what they thought God would do, this isn't how they thought God would respond. This isn't how they thought God would interact. This isn't how it was going to go down when the Messiah showed up. And they had a very neatly curated, defined God box. And because Jesus didn't fit into that box, they were willing to dismiss and ignore everything. But others asked, well, because they're starting to connect the dots. How can a sinner perform such signs like, that doesn't that doesn't seem like it adds up so they were divided and basically arguing around who Jesus was and then they turned again to the blind man what do you have to say about it it was your eyes that were open and the man replied i don't know he's a prophet maybe they still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they sent for the man's parents and they're like okay so we have we think your son here and they asked, is this the one you say was born blind. How is it that now he can see? And I imagine the parents are there like, okay, so I don't, I'm not sure all the questions that you have, but here, there's two things we know really well. We're intimately aware. Uh, this is definitely our son. He's got, you know, birthmark behind his ear. Like this is the guy we spent a lot of time with him. So a couple of things we know, our son, absolutely for sure. Second thing we know, because we spent a lot of time with him, he, was blind, Spent his whole life blind. So there's a lot, I'm not sure that we can answer for you, but two things we do know. It's our son, we know he was born blind, but now how he can see and who opened his eyes, we have no idea. And then because they didn't want to get in trouble with the religious leaders because they knew that there would be trouble, they basically put it on their son. Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. So verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid, It's so important, of the Jewish leaders, who had already, Decided, who had already predecided, predetermined, no way this can be God, no way Jesus is for real, no way this fits into our box. They made up their mind because this is so important. there was not room in their worldview, and there was not room in their theology for what was right in front of them. And anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah as why his parents didn't want to answer, would be put out of the synagogue, meaning because this man was willing to declare that there's something about Jesus, he would be ostracized in our words, he would be excommunicated. And just think about it, just for a second. Here are these religious leaders, completely blinded, you want to talk about blind? Blinded to their presuppositions and their assumptions about God their confirmation bias that says, no, 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 this is what God's gonna do. This is how God's gonna respond. This is how God would interact or react. He didn't do that. He's not God. I don't care what's happening in front of me. We have already decided. And so a second time, verse 24, they summoned the man who had been blind because they just want to answer. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't know everything. I, I think the, the guy's like, you guys are educated. You probably know the Torah. Most people in this society are not educated. We can't even you write, read. There's, there's no reason to. We don't have access to any of that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of education. I don't know everything. I can't answer all your questions, he would say. I don't understand everything. But I don't need to understand everything to believe something. And see, this is really important because this may be the thing that's tripping you up and I get it, I completely understand it, but but you're at a place where you want to understand everything in order for you to believe something. And you, you wanna understand everything before you believe in anything. And here's what I would tell you that's really important to consider. You don't put that lit- litmus test up against any other thing in your life. Like you don't operate that way in any other area of your life and neither do I. Like you... You've experienced love. You know it exists. You can't really explain it for me. But you believe in things like information. Explain that. You believe in things like energy or consciousness. I mean, really sit down and explain that for me. You can't. You don't make that judgment or operate that way in any other area of your life. And it's so important because they're stuck in a place where they have to understand everything to believe anything. But you don't function in any area of your life that way. And so he replied, verse 25, whether it's a sin or not, I don't know. One thing I know. If you grew up in church, you maybe know this verse. It's one of the most powerful lines in all of scripture that's been echoed over and over and over again. I just don't know. I can't answer all the questions. I don't have all the information. I think he would lean in to go, but it's one thing I do know. One thing I'm pretty sure about. I was blind. Now I can see. That's the only thing I know, and it's so crazy, isn't it? Like I think and I'll come back around this at the end that, that our faith should be intellectually robust. I think it should be thoughtful. I think it should be nuanced. I one of the things that just makes me cringe is the brand of Christianity that just says, "Have faith, just believe." and And completely discounts intellectualism where Jesus has invited us into such a robust intellectual faith. It makes me cringe. But with that, it's crazy that there are, besides all of the evidence that I think exists, there are millions upon millions upon millions of people that share that story. They were going along and their life was out of control and everything was hitting the fan and they walked out and they couldn't beat the addiction and they were walking through that suffering and the business failed and they were betrayed and they didn't see any hope for their future and somehow they got to—they would say they got to the end of their self and they cried out to God and the only thing that they could explain for you and maybe this is your story is that when they cried out to God, something happened. And they have never been the same again. And I can't explain everything that happened. I can't articulate all of it. There's a part of it that's a little bit of a mystery, but I'm telling you, I was here, and now I am here. Something has changed. Something is different. It's personal to me, so you're never gonna argue me out of it. And I'm telling you, in my own words, whatever that thing was in my life, I was blind, I had this thing, and now I can see something is different. And that story has been echoed all throughout the generations. And so verse 26, they're still not done. Then they asked him, like, okay, but what, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Which is basically like, we're looking for reasons to discount. We're looking for reasons to not believe. And then verse 27, he answered, I've told you already, and you don't listen. And this is where I love this guy. He gets more and more bold and sarcastic as he goes. I mean, listen, when you've been blind your whole life and you've just been healed, you don't care. Like, I just, whatever, what are you guys going to do to me? So he answered, I've told you already, you guys don't listen. Why do you, I love this. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you guys want to become his disciples too? You guys want to follow him? You're so curious. You want to know so much information about who he is and where he come from and what did he, what did he do? Do you guys want to follow him? Which obviously ticked him off. So they hurled insults at him and said, no, no, no. You're this guy's disciple. You're, we are disciples of Moses and we, they're so confident. We know that God spoke to Moses. But for this guy, we don't even know where he comes from, which is such a shot. And then the blind man again, again, he just doesn't care. More and more sarcastic as he goes, the man answered, okay, so that's, that's, that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet I can see. You can't figure him out and have no information about him. And here I am, been blind all my life, and he healed me. And the blind man's implication is, yo, isn't it obvious how much more information and evidence do you need? And I think really this is what he's saying. Guys, open your eyes. If this man's response was from God, he, he could do Nothing or no the blind man's right if this man is from God he could do nothing to this they replied verse 34 you were quick. this is why religion can become so deadly this is why religion can elevate things that honestly at the end of the day are made up and attributed to God whether they are or not and then use them to unlove and withhold compassion from other people that's this is the dark side, this is the religious trauma, this is, where, this is what some of you are trying to unwind from, and it's why you have run fast and hard from Jesus, because unfortunately he got mixed up with a toxic religious system that elevates self, is arrogant, and dismisses everything that it doesn't understand. And so here they are, this is the outflow of that kind of religion. They replied, you you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out of church. I mean, basically, they told the man, and these guys speak for God, work on behalf of God, spiritually lead other people toward God. And they told this guy that he deserved to be born blind, and then then they threw him out. Willful blindness, refusing to look, and refusing to see what can be seen. And, and like we know this already, right? But refu- refusing to discover what can be discovered is not flattering to anybody. And if we're to be honest, let's start with Jesus followers first. I'm always the hardest on Jesus followers because I am one, so I can talk honestly and throw shots lovingly at myself and all of us. But we're we're the worst sometimes. I mean, historically, Christianity, the way we've dismissed science, we haven't done ourselves huge favors over the last few years. We've dismissed psychology, intellectualism, anything or any person we don't understand. And we are left looking like the religious leaders in this story. And there's one more thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I'll just be straight up, this is the kind of church I'm trying to lead, we're trying to lead, because we are in a cultural moment where nuance died, thoughtfulness died, having discussions where you actually listen rather than making another person's point of view a caricature is dead, and we're followers of Jesus? We should be the most fearless, accommodating, humble, passionate, willing-to-listen people on the face of the planet and in any room. We're followers of Jesus. I'm not going to make a caricature out of you. I'm going to move in and genuinely try to go I want to listen to you I want to know you I want to understand you and by the way I don't know that we hold anything in common but by the way you're made in the image of God and I also understand that I am finite and I don't understand everything there's this weird shift in the evangelicalism where we hijack Jesus words where he said I am the way the truth and the life and instead we got our little denomination and theological system and then t- attach those words to go we are the way the truth and the life and everybody just needs to understand We are not Jesus. Jesus is the truth. You are not the truth. We are not the truth. Our goal is to follow Jesus. And so we should be the most thoughtful people in any room to go, I don't understand you, but I want to understand you. And I want to listen and I want to learn and I want to know you. And I'm going to be thoughtful and nuanced and I'm going to shut my mouth sometimes and just lean in because I have nothing to fear. And the thought that I can like, Grab a hold of my, and I see so many, this is not a shot, all of us are tempted to do this, I see so many seminary students do this, where like you graduate 24, 25, post-grad, and you've got all this theology, and you just think you're set for life, never to revisit it again. God doesn't change, but you better because you're not clued in on everything that makes up the God of the universe. That's true of your worldview. That's true of the application of everything that Jesus said. It is constantly a journey of learning. And there should be extraordinary humility from followers of Jesus. Otherwise, we do end up just like the religious leaders in the story. Didn't fit into this box. So I'm going to dismiss it. It wasn't right or wrong, so I'm going to dismiss it. It didn't fit into the red bucket or the blue bucket. I'm going to dismiss it. And we give up actually following Jesus and taking our cues from Jesus. One of my, I've said this before, one of my favorite messages as a pastor that I'll get a lot of times from people who listen via radio or a lot of times where it comes from other places as well, and there'll be like direct messages on social media, and they'll, they'll start so frustrated, like, you're so frustrating, and I was like, I, I can never figure out where you're coming from. Sometimes I think you're like on the left and I think you're on the right and then I think you believe this. It's just, and then they'll list like eight questions of like, could you just tell me what you believe about these eight things? And I almost never answer the eight things and I just write back, thank you. Because what you just described is my goal, my agenda. And, I, and the only reason I'm not gonna answer the eight things is because your only priority is to try to fit me in a box. And I'm trying to lead people to follow Jesus, not be married to your agenda because your agenda is a thing of this world. It's a kingdom of this world. And ultimately it's going to go away. So anyway, I spent way too much time on that than I planned on. So here's, here's what I want to say to everybody. This is, this is whether you are a God follower, or you left, you walked away, you tried to follow Jesus for 30 years, or you are just completely unsure about the whole thing. And there's room for everybody. But listen, if you have limited God to the God of the box, you will be tempted to not look at anything that doesn't fit in that box. You'll be tempted to not see and to dismiss anything that doesn't fit into that box. And again, we should be the most curious, fearless people on the planet. And so if you're a Christian that maybe walked away not sure if you believe you're just grappling with all of this and investigating and I have so much genuine respect for you if that's the place that you're in. Here would be my question for you, have you looked lately? Like have you looked lately and have you, have you shut the door potentially never to go open it up again? And, and then the last question, is that wise? Because here's all I wanna challenge you on as I end the series is it possible that you have a a God of the box? Like, do you immediately dismiss anything that doesn't immediately fit with what you've already decided? Do you immediately dismiss what doesn't immediately fit in your box? And perhaps that's the reason that you actually walked away from faith once upon a time. And perhaps the God that you quit believing in is very similar to the God of the box that Christians so fiercely defended. And what I wanna say to you as we close, perhaps God is bigger than you thought he was. Perhaps God is bigger than you were taught he was. And I think this is so important. It's okay to be wrong. Like, we're all, all of us are wrong. I think if we're really honest, we're wrong most of the time. And it's okay to not know. We're all on a journey. We're all trying to learn. None of us have all of the clarity that, that one day we're going to have. But here's where I would challenge you and encourage you. It's not okay to not look if there's something to be seen. And John comes along last surviving apostle and he has seen so much horrific carnage the death of friends potentially destruction of jerusalem everything that he had held on to it cost him to follow jesus and he's left with nothing in his hands at the end of his life he's writing not so much about what he believed ultimately he believed and trusted in it he wrote about what he saw and what he heard And he says to all of us, I'm telling you, I was there, I saw Jesus, I journeyed with Jesus. The historical evidence is overwhelming. And I documented what I saw and I'm hoping that eventually you would listen to what I saw, you would lean in and to quote John in John 20, 31, in that moment you would believe that Jesus, he actually is the Messiah and he may not in any way Be connected to the religion you grew up, the church experience you grew up with, the religious leader who wounded you. Those two things may be very, very different. John's like, I'm talking about Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing or trusting in, you'd find the things that you have been searching for your entire life. You would find life in Jesus' name. And I think John would say, I'm just a dude. And I was there and I had the unique privilege to live in the days when the light of the world touched down on planet earth. And John would say, I'm just telling you, don't miss it. Because here these guys were, these men and women were, and they were yards away from the great redeemer that every prophet pointed to. They were feet away from the great reconciler that they had read from Isaiah and that they had waited for and they had longed for, he was right in front of them. And they could reach out and touch physically the light of the world. He was feet away from them. They could smell him, they could touch him, they could see him, they could hear him, and they missed him. And John says, I encountered him, I was with him. I saw enough evidence that eventually I believed and then when he walked out of a grave alive, I placed my faith and my trust in him. I'm just telling you, he is bigger and he is better than you could ever imagine. And it's why I pinned these famous words that God so loved the world that he gave everything, he gave himself so that nobody would be lost to God. And we didn't know what that meant and then we watched him die a criminal's death on a cross perfected through Roman crucifixion and all the way up till that happened we thought at any moment he's gonna pull an audible and he's gonna get himself out of this thing and it's gonna be this massive moment and it didn't happen and then we watched him die and breathe his last and we thought it's all over the movement is dead our faith is in vain and then we watched our resurrected savior and we documented 500 solid. Secular historians wrote about it. And God anchored something in history so that you would no longer have to just buy into, just believe that, have faith in. No, no, God's done something in history so that you could know there are signs that prove that there's evidence so that you could believe that and you could trust it. And John went, I believed and then I didn't and then I believed. And then when I saw my resurrected savior, I trusted in and I got to the end of my life and I had nothing, but I was willing to die and give up my life for what I saw. The moment Jesus walked out of the grave alive, it validated everything that he said about his life and about his death, that there is forgiveness, that life is possible, that Jesus is sent from God, and that maybe the religious system we grew up with is dead and null and void, and now we have been invited to serve and to follow Jesus. And John would say, it is so much better, and it is so much bigger than you could ever imagine. And I think in closing, John would say, despite what you've thought, despite what you struggled with, God is not far. And despite what you've done, and despite what a religious leader told you, and despite the guilt that you still carry from your past, you are not far from God. So over the house, would you just pray with me right now? And if you're watching, listening online, listening to the unfiltered radio, I wanna invite you into this moment. And I just wanna give you this opportunity to respond as we close, as I end this series. And I don't always do this. And, and I just always wanna make it clear that everybody's on a journey and God is not forcing his will and his way on you. But I just know this from experience and I've seen it throughout the series that there's moments where God does something and maybe unbeknownst to us and unexpected to us, we just have that, that moment we can't describe to go, I believe. And I say this over and over again that you, could, you can pray this prayer after me and there's no prayer that saves you. There's no perfect words. You don't need any of that. You just need a declaration of your faith and trust. But wherever you are online or in the house, you just pray this prayer and it's your declaration that saves you. But, but these words are really clear in the New Testament. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so pray this after me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you live the perfect life that I could. And I believe that you died on the cross from my sin, past, present, future. And then I believe that you rose again. And right now in this moment, I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting what you did for me to forgive me, save me. The scripture says, when you make that declaration of trust because it's based on his performance, not yours, you become a son and a daughter of God and nothing you can do could cause you to ever be disinherited. And so if this is the moment for some of you with nobody looking around and just out of respect for what God's doing in this moment, we just lift up your hand and we're not gonna do anything weird, but I'd love to have an usher put a card in your hand. You can fill it out if you want or you can just throw it away. But if you'd like more information about this journey, we don't wanna just have you make a decision. We wanna help you take a next step. But if this is your moment to go, maybe for the first time, I've placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. We just raise up your hand just real quick to go, this is my moment. This is the space where I finally place my faith and my trust in Jesus. Just keep it up for just a second. If you're online, I would love for you just to text centerpoint to 94000. We'd love to send you a link, just give you information about this journey. Jesus, I thank you for what you are doing for what you've done for 2000 years. And I pray that as a gathering, as a church, as a movement, that our focus, our eyes would be on Jesus. And for those of us still journeying, and I I don't know if we'll ever get there, but my prayer is the prayer of John, that at some point they would believe and they would place their trust in you as their Lord and their Savior. And I pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen.